Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device via the, across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is the ever-wonderful Anthony Dockrell. Today's show has been inspired by two not unrelated things. The Prime Minister's reported desire to get politics off the front page. Best, best of luck with that, ScoMo. And the media's never-ending ability to reduce seemingly, uh, well, to reduce complex issues to a simple choice, hero or villain, which incidentally is the title to the two-part Four Corners investigation into Julian Assange, who is either a courageous journalist, revolutionary, an ill-principled hacker, or an intention-seeking narcissist, or even a threat to US global supremacy. More about him in a minute or two. Seeking to answer whether Assange is a hero or zero is certainly a fair quest. And if anyone can nail it, the ABC's Michael Brisson is a good pick for the task. Best of luck with the next episode. But in this social media age where shares and likes are the currency of the day, is news media addicted to reducing every subject to good v evil, black v white, winners and losers? We seem to be trapped in a binary world. Take the celebrity chef, George Conbaris. As media watchers, Paul Barry noted the other night, he was already known to have underpaid his workers many millions before it was revealed he owed even many more millions than was first thought. But even so, he was given a sort of saintly pictorial treatment by the Sydney Morning Herald and Good, Ages Good Weekend magazine. Maybe it was just a design thing, but it wasn't a great look, was it? And of course, George and the rest of the MasterChef gang are now looking for new jobs, though we are assured by Channel 10 that the two issues are unrelated. Or the anniversary of the moon landing this past few days. Why would the Today Show and the ABC, yes, yes, still the most trusted news organization in the country, give airtime to the conspiracy theory that the landing was fate? Why is that even a thing? So to channel my original question is, is this what we get when, as an alternative to politics on the front page. Seems like we will have to rely on journalists making the news themselves, like the French film crew getting arrested for filming at the Adani Mine protest, or the Australian journalist Primrose Rurden refusing to shake the hands of a prominent pro-Chinese Hong Kong politician. Many, many things to talk about, and to help me wade through these, these and related questions, I am joined by a stellar panel, including Sarah Alks, the esteemed Queensland political reporter from The Australian, on the line from Brisbane. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Peter. In the flesh, we have Simon Creer, the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed Australia, who may or may not be cooking up his re-entry into the journalistic fray. Hello, Simon. Hello, Peter. <laughs> and Wilson De Silva, the long-serving editor and founder of the science magazine Cosmos, who now applies his trade in the freelance world. Hello, Wilson. Hello, Peter. Welcome, one and all. Before we get to heroes and villains, can I quickly ask each of you for your reaction to the news that there will now be two parliamentary inquiries into press freedom, one by the Parliament's Joint Committee on Security and Intelligence, backed and controlled by the government, and the other passed recently, last night or two, uh, in the Senate with support from Labour, Greens and the crossbench. This latter one is a broader affair looking at whistleblowing, defamation and other aspects which impinge on journalists doing their job. I guess my questions are, one, what do we want out of such inquiries? And two, given the government didn't support the Senate committee, 
uh, inquiry. What hope is there anything meaningful coming out of it rather than lots of well-meaning talk? Wilson, over to you first. What do you think? I actually think that having two inquiries is a good idea. I mean, we can't necessarily trust the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee to um, necessarily do a thorough job because, let's face it, the, the, the secretive and punitive regime that applies now to media and the whistleblowers was largely created uh, by that committee, whether uh, whether that committee w- had a hand in creating it or whether they just waved through whatever the well, intelligence... Well, it certainly gave it its uh, imprimatur, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so right. they, they might have just waved it through. But anyway, that, mm. that's the creation. So to expect them to uh, to, to apply uh, the... the um, a real focus to this is is a challenge. The other committee, on the other hand, as you said, it's not a government committee, so how much can it achieve? Um, the Labor Greens committee. The hope, I, I, I'm hopeful because um, if we get enough embarrassing skeletons in the closet, if we get enough examples, like the Banking Royal Commission, mm-hmm. it kind of creates its own steam and mm-hmm. finally they might have to do something. So the atmospherics of it. Okay, yeah. yeah. Simon, your take? Well, I think it's a bit of checks and balances in that there's the government approach and then there's the rest of the parliament. And I think that in an ideal world, this committee would be, have, have a combination of those voices within it. But we know that um, these Senate inquiries in recent years have become incredibly politicised mm. and then have um, you know been stacked in a way that has pushed through legislation which hasn't been given the detailed forensic analysis um, that um, you know has, has created opportunities for departments of state to move in ways that um, retrospect Effectively, the Prime Minister and, the, um, and uh, the Home Affairs Minister have said, oh, no, this wasn't our intention at all. Mm, mm, so mm. I, think, um, I think if at this stage um, where, where we're, you know, in an ideal world, we roll back and start again and look, that's not going to happen. But at least there's the counterbalance of this other uh, committee to, to weigh against it. Mm. So, Sarah, you're there at the coalface. And if you had a wish list, your first one or two, what would you want out of these inquiries? What would make your life, your job that much easier? Well, I think firstly, um, yes, as a working journalist, you want some sort of comfort that um, that we won't be prosecuted simply for doing our jobs and that the people that we speak to, the people who trust us with telling their stories or with telling um, the stories based on information they might supply us aren't, are also not going to be prosecuted for doing things in the public interest. So I think, um, like you said, the second Senate committee is going to be focused on um, uh, whistleblowing and also our defamation laws and that kind of thing, which haven't been talked about particularly favourably in terms of its comparison with other parts of the Western world. I think want just some comfort that we're not going to be prosecuted in the course of our duties uh, and, and that, like you say, that, that whistleblowers won't be as well. And I agree with Wilson that I think, yes, we could be quite pessimistic about w- what might come out of it, but if um, the witnesses or people who choose to testify and give submissions to these inquiries make their case well enough, then perhaps public momentum could swing behind it and the government could sort of sort of be shamed into doing mm. something certainly, about it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on that. I mean, certainly the moment seems to be here, the press raids, for instance, the debate about the impact of the digital platforms and, and many mm. other issues, all kind of in the defamation. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Rothman decision in a minute. Mm. All this seems to be adding in some momentum. So there might you be You do wor- worry, I worry, that there's so much noise around this and you worry how much of this noise is um, people within the media are very interested in the media mm. um, and how much, you know, how much have you stopped the look on the street walking down the road and asked them, what do you care? Mm. Would you know that whether they'd be that informed and it kind of adds to the kind of confusion? Well, that's a, that's a great mm. idea. Next, next, uh, Anthony, can we do the next... Uh, Fourth Estate, just on the street, asking people <laughs> if they give a shit about journalism. Sure. 
What do you reckon? What answers do you reckon we get, Wilson? I don't think we'd get many answers. In the same way that most people are not politically engaged, they're probably not overly concerned uh, with the role that the media plays. I don't understand it, but it's actually the fabric, you know, mm. the infrastructure of democracy. Um, I was thinking as Sarah was talking that, uh, you know, this sort of uh, sl- slow death by a thousand cuts that is that is occurring occurring to journalism and its role in democracy, which is important, mm. um, its role rather than the attacks, um, that why not just outlaw journalism from the start? If that's their ultimate <laughs> aim, it's kind of like, like they're trying right. to destroy, you know, they often argue that the liberals are trying to destroy Medicare. Are they, you know, there's an argument here, are they trying to destroy journalism? Because at every stage over the last five or six years, we've seen uh, constriction around the role of journalists. Yeah, I think politicians of every ilk uh, would, would prefer that they didn't have to have that robust inquiry into what they do. Um, I don't know whether it's actually they're sitting there thinking, how can we um, you know, push this in- industry into the grave? Hopefully not. Well, talking about uh, restrictions on journalism, Sarah, um, this week we saw a French TV crew, a, t- a journalist, Hugh Clement, and his crew arrested uh, for covering a protest about the Adani mine. Which appears to me, and you know, I'm not in Queensland. I'm just going from you know my trusted media reports. But it seems to me that he was just doing his job. Um, yeah, arresting journalists for doing the job was, seems a bit of a throwback to Joe Bielke Peterson days. Is it getting tougher in Queensland, or or is this just a sort of one-off, or is there this high sensitivity about Adani? What's what's really going on? Yes, welcome to North Queensland, where international um, international film crews are uh, arrested as as you watch on, um, this wasn't the best look for the Queensland Police, which, as you mentioned, hasn't sort of had, has a bit of a storied past with cracking down on protests and the media. That's obviously a long time ago. Um, I think I think there's quite a regional divide um, here. Like, I don't think that the arrest happened in Bowen, um, which is in North Queensland. It's right near the port um, the Abbott Point port where Adani owns that port and it's going to ship out the coal um, bound for India when it starts to dig up coal from the Galilee Basin. So it's been a bit of an epicentre of protests and there's been quite a lot of... Um, there's been quite a lot of sort of intense feeling on the ground from North Queensland locals about the Adani protest. Most of the people aren't... Um, but surely you can North film Queensland. it. I mean, I yes, haven't reached a point right. where you can't... I, I get all that, and we saw that during the federal election campaign, for instance, and the whole Bob Brown thing yeah. and what have you, but yes. uh, this French TV crew just seemed to be filming it, right? Oh, 100%. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting no, I know that the police, the police did the right thing in this scenario. And I think the journalists even said, look where the media, you know, we're just doing our job. So I think the, the police in North Queensland probably made the wrong decision. I don't think you would see the same thing happening on the streets of Brisbane. We've had a lot of um, um, we've had a lot of anti-Zani protests, and um, I think they're called Extinction Rebellion protests in the CBD of Brisbane recently, where people have been trying to shut it down. And obviously, there's been a lot of media coverage of that. There have been protesters arrested for gluing themselves onto the streets in peak hour, um, but so far the media has not been touched. And I can't recall the last time a journalist was arrested in Queensland for doing their job. So I would suggest this is an anomaly, but um, it's certainly not a Is it because they're French? 
<laughs> I mean, it's the signal. I think the signal. Yeah, I think the signal it sends um, is really bad. That already, like I certainly, you guys probably did too. Have when the AFP raids were happening around the corner. Um, ABC here had colleagues of mine in the US and the UK saying, "Look, this is really terrible. What's happening in Australia?" You know, showing concern for for practitioners of the craft. And then, you know, to have had that already happening and then to have this thing happening where people are really, you know, there's sometimes adjacency when you're covering a process where you, you know, they might be deploying pepper spray in the streets of Melbourne, for instance, and people accidentally get sprayed and journalists Ooh. are trying to take photos, Ooh. get that. But actually to get nicked and to yep. be put in a paddy wagon yep. simply for recording what's actually going on uh, when, you know, as the footage shows, they're saying, hey, we're journalists and, you know, I, th- I think it's the signal it sends and now, you know, that, that reinforces this message that like something has changed in Australia where simply doing our job simply reporting what's going on is somehow not okay right. from a kind of uh, government perspective. I think it ha- something has changed and it's perhaps the consequences of those raids that you mentioned at News Corp and uh, ABC. It's open season. Mm. Well, it's starting to think about this. Um, the very action of the raids is sending subtle messages to everyone, any authoritarian mm. bureaucrats or whatever. It's okay to pick on journalists. That uh, you know, It's creating an atmosphere where it's okay to strong-arm reporters, arrest film crews, deny media information. And the more authoritarian and hawkish elements of society will feel more you know, comfortable. Mm. Mm. Okay. You know, well, we're going to go to the moon now. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and Wilson, we're going to hold, hold your horses one second because I know this is a very suspicious area <laughs> for you. Yes. Uh, so we all know the story. It's 50 years since uh, human set foot on the moon this past week or so. Uh, Neil Armstrong's first steps were brought to the world via the, a dish near Canberra, who the, kind of didn't really get mentioned in the movie that much, yeah. and then much more famously and mentioned in the movie, the one near Parks in New South Wales. I am going to go to you in a second, Wilson, but Simon and Sarah, what do you make of all this anniversary journalism? I've been really obsessive about it. I think um, I went to see in the Sydney Film Festival the amazing CNN documentary, which was really tremendous archival footage without any other voice in there. Um, I took my five-year-old and he was super energized by this amazing achievement. And I think to be able to look back and be nostalgic about it, about this moment where America in this amazing race did this incredible thing on the behalf of humanity is fabulous. I think then, you know, every single aspect of this story has been um, unpacked again. And certainly the, the, the hoax, which as I understand, I really great thing that Daryl King, an Australian journalist, wrote for Medium, uh, uh, this new publication, Gen, uh, about Bill Casing, who's the guy who wrote the book in 1976. We never went to the moon, America's $30 billion swindle, which was basically bar and bunkum, where somebody made, made a bet to him, hey, like, why don't you write a book about this crazy thing? And that then kind of weaponized it. Right. And I think if you fast forward 40, 50 years, what's happened in this area of social media, where um, you know, fake news is like this huge circulating global phenomenon, it's much easier to find currency for this kind of yes. narrative to, you know, this, this questioning of every single thing that we know maybe you know all the all the breakdown of it so the fact it's come up again i think is it's just part of it's you know part of the environment we're in where every every people are looking at things and saying well even the moon landing was a fake so so sarah can we blame donald trump for this i think i think we partly can or maybe we can blame the climate in which donald trump arose that this sort of post-facts world where um you know experts and research are distrusted and conspiracies kind of abound. Yes, I think, look, I I think part of the the coverage about um, the moon landing conspiracies was um, a little bit of journalists thinking we've got this, you know, we've got this huge expanse of um, newspaper space or or television space about the moon landing. Let's have a tiny segment on conspiracies. Um, But yes, I don't, look, I don't think we should be giving any kind of credence to them. I, I guess it's, Depends on the tone in which you cover it. Yes, well, so, so Wilson, uh, <laughs> you know, look, we have Channel 9 today show, so 
perhaps you know they they're you know they're in the breakfast space and so maybe you're allowed to get away with it. But ABC, you know, the most trusted news organization in the country. No, I, I mean, agree with you. I agree with you. It's uh, where why we got to this point though. I mean, there's something. I mean, yes, Trump maybe, and yes, you know, the atmosphere it's that both Sarah and Simon talk about. But there's something else going on. There is it? something else, and it's something else going on in media generally. I think. Um, I know it's the the section we're talking about is a four minute segment and an otherwise nice package celebrating the 50th anniversary. Sure. But, um, that event itself, it, to and I know they were trying to counter conspiracy theories by going through each one and then saying why it's not true, but it's moronic. Um, it paints conspiracies as just, as just something that people believe and maintains this chatty, asinine tone. Mm. It does nothing to assert what is empirical fact and historical knowledge, you know? Um, and uh, versus spitball conjecture, say, even a 10 year old will tell you it, was, um, it wasn't all that uh, very well done. Uh, but it's not uncommon in the ABC coverage. You know, it's the sort of um, uh, reality television approach that we st- we've been seeing. In, so it's in, a ratings kind of vibe. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's ratings because I'm not in there. I don't know what the discussions sure, are. Sure. But but you just see it as someone who's just seen the content coming out for the, over the last six, seven years. There's this real kind of MasterChef uh, the masterchefization. Back to George Cohen Barnes. Exactly He's everywhere well. today. You know, it, it just it's affecting it. And the Today Show piece was completely well. What you do? Actually, Today Extra, which is even more, um, you know, magazine. I think magazine would be a word we're searching for. It's sort of new idea to Woman's Day. Yes, yes. Um, and it uh, it it went over the top. And this poor young PhD graduate yeah, yeah. from just, uh, yeah. had to sort of well, answer these moronic questions like why is there no gravity on the moon can i ask you a bigger <laughs> can i ask you a big, yes can i ask you a bigger question which is science literacy in the general news media i mean is this also is this at a lower level now than it has been i mean you know it's easy to kind of lament how great it was back then but as it this science literacy of the general news reporting public us in other words is this where the problem lies? Two things are happening at the same time. The number of science journalists is decreasing, mm-hmm. um, but there are a lot of science graduates going into journalism because they like communication. Uh, I try my best to tell them that don't expect to earn a great deal of money, but apparently science, you don't earn a great amount of money either. Um, there's, so that's encouraging to see that happening. But on the other hand, um, we don't have the kind of discipline coverage that we had. I remember Deborah Smith, who used to be the editor of the City Morning Herald, uh, sorry, the science editor. Science editor, yeah. Um, she used to say that most of her time was spent um, putting out stories, making sure they didn't get a run because uh, there'd be discussions internally. She and was a gatekeeper. It's mm. right. And that is a valid role that happens, but that's mm. not happening anymore mm. uh, because there are so few science journalists working. On the other hand, we have organisations like the Science Media Centre in uh, Adelaide, mm. which keeps track of emerging issues and then sends general journalists mm. um, lots of information on background things, whether it's vaccination or whatever, moon hoaxes, mm. and gives gives them solid people to to quote rather than just ringing some nut job and asking them for a quote for a quote. So, right. you know, the two are happening at the same time. Does That's it a fight increase? against good and evil, isn't it? It is a fight <laughs> against good and evil. Yeah. That's right. I do think um, very quickly last year we worked BuzzFeed worked with um, ANU and the, the Science Center um, on a kind of experiment, a six month experiment to fund a science reporter in our newsroom. Um, and I think that she was a graduate, science graduate, a very good communicator, Ooh. did great reporting, was part of the BuzzFeed Global Science team. And I think that there is somewhere where we obviously have seen the conversation, we've seen attempts, innovative attempts to take, um, like, find the academy and, and to take that I- into the public sphere. And I do think that's where uni- universities could perhaps work to th- figure out models of 
getting, you know, rather than those um, the science graduates going off and not working in journalism, because it feels that the, the, the fact that every masthead has lost their science reporter, there's a gap there that really needs so to be I, filled. So I followed that uh, um, Alfie's progress at BuzzFeed very, uh, mm, yeah. very closely, because she was obviously, she was a UTS person, mm. uh, blah, blah, blah. But um, the it always strikes me that there's a paradox here, which is that they're always science stories always are very popular, and yet yeah. news media organizations don't invest and in investing less and less in science journalism. What's what's that no, about? No, in I, fact, the two CSIRO mass studies that have been done on what people want to read more of yep. at the very top was science. Well, actually, was um, medical research and then science, astronomy, etc. At the very bottom that they wanted to read more of was finance and politics. And yet we've got the exact opposite delivered to our audiences. I think it's maybe potentially that like the vast people who are running newsrooms and historically running newsrooms are kind of arts graduates and are focused on politics and government and those kind of conversations. Um, we had an issue with thinking about how you commercialize around that. And actually, I felt very strongly that there was a real opportunity there, um, you know, in terms of finding advertising dollars, if you like, down the line to support that. And could you find advertising dollars, you um, think? Well, we, we were trying to find traction, yes, yeah, for sure. Okay. I think um, the mindset of the sales teams to focus on that was hard. Yeah. Right, yeah. okay. All right, let's move on. Mm. Uh, Sarah, I'm going to blame you entirely for this, okay? <laughs> So you political reporters are to blame for everything today. <laughs> um, I don't know if you uh, know Primrose Reardon, Reardon uh, formerly of the Australian now reporter of Financial Times in Hong Kong. Did you ever work with her? Uh, no, I only know her by reputation in that she's an extremely good reporter and um, wasn't surprised to see her. I, um, holding her nerve in this situation that you're about to describe. Yes, well, it was very much holding her nerve. So she's created a bit of a storm in Hong Kong where she now works for the Financial Times for refusing to shake the hands of a very influential pro-Beijing Hong Kong politician, Eunice Ho, at a press conference. And before that snub, Ho had been seen shaking the hands of the white T-shirted mob who attacked civilians on a Hong Kong train. So Riedon basically declined the shake to decline to shake the hand, the same hand that had shook the hands of the attackers, if you like. So what do you think, Sarah? Is this the right thing to do, or is this kind of a, a problem because it's the journalist becoming the story rather than reporting it? Well, I, I mean, I think she did exactly the right thing, and I would hope that I would react the same way in that scenario. She was asking. Um, why he had shaken hands with the white-clothed men. And then I think he had extended his hand to her to say, I presume, you know, I've got to shake hands with everybody or I shake hands with people no matter who they are. And, and she managed to sort of resist that kind of intrinsic human urge to shake an outstretched hand um, and did a very good job surrounded by other reporters and television cameras and all that kind of thing. I don't, I mean, I, I think she probably would be mortified to think that she has become the story. I think she was just doing what she had to do to ask the questions and not, if she had have shaken his hand, it would have almost um, uh, eroded her, the perception of impartiality and all that kind of So whose hand, who's hand would you not shake? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of Similar um, thing where I never this might be this might be why I'm not very <laughs> popular in Queensland political circles, but I never clap at a speech by a politician. I'll never stand up when other people give a standing ovation, and I never clap. Um, oh, that's interesting. Good on you, Sarah. Good reason. on you, Sarah. And, and the reasoning there is that you're doing your job. You're not there to be uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, that's right. We're not there to literally applaud um, mm. or shake hands. I've always found not it. there to be anybody's friend. So, um, okay, Wilson, who's... No, no, I've always found it weird how at, 
at in the White House, they mm. the journalists stand up and clap the president. Yeah. Um, and if you see them traveling, the White House correspondents if they're ever traveling, they do exactly the same. It's very weird. Yeah, so I'm, would you shake Donald Trump's hand? I wouldn't, because if I'm interviewing him, I'm performing as a journalist. Okay. You know, it, it, you've got to remember what your role is. You and you're playing into. In the case of that legislator hand, it, it seemed to me like he was. It was a stunt, and she she was he was goading her into do it so he could make a point, and. If she had succumbed, then she would have ceased to be a journalist. What do you think, Sam? Well, I think it's by association the bloodied hand that was involved in beating these protesters up. And I think that maybe it would have been a bigger story if she had actually shook his hand. I think like sometimes I feel that, um, particularly around political journalism, that there's a proximity. Uh, the reason people end up in the lobby is, is they, they're seduced in some kind of way by closeness to power. And my sister's a political journalist in the UK, and I've always felt uneasy to go into her bathroom and see photos of her and Blair and Brown in those days and I know there's a photo of her with Boris when she was on a junket with him and that proximity she's not looking too happy sitting next to him but there's a bit of a celebrity we're living in an age of celebrity selfies right yeah well she can put it in the front room now yeah exactly but that closeness of and and obviously they work in the same buildings and they have that closeness to each other but my philosophy has always been that like let's assume that they're lying bastards trying to um, you know and and, and, you know maybe they're human beings of course and they're often trying to do good but like let's just um, distance ourselves a little bit from that sense of maybe she put it in in the toilet for a particular reason (laughs) maybe and we'll we'll find out in the next few weeks and months right (laughs) sarah going back to back to you though i mean one thing that visitors to this country have remarked on visiting journalists is the is the proximity of australian journalists to politicians you know canberra is very close other state parliaments are very close in do you find you know sometimes that you prefer to be out of the building rather than in the building I do, in both a a physical sense and probably a metaphorical sense. I think um, particularly after um, sittings of parliament up here, you often um, see politicians kicking back with a beer in their offices and I know some of my colleagues um, go and have a drink with them, but I just feel a little bit uncomfortable about that actually. Um, I think we need to, regardless of what political stripes they are, I think we need to... create a really clear distance. Um, I, I'm not sure it would stop them, any of my colleagues, from um, reporting on those politicians without fear or, or favour. Um, but I think just for my own self personally, um, I don't really want to be friends with Well, I guess the, the question that leads us to is this. Um, journalists, you know, form relationships with politicians because they get leaks from them. So do you think you're disadvantaged in terms of, you know, getting a drop or two by the fact you don't have a beer with the politicians? Well, uh, potentially um, on a surface level, um, I'd prefer to get my stories rather than being dropped certain things by the government, perhaps, um, you know, the angle that they want reported. I prefer to get my stories the old-fashioned way, I suppose, um, although maybe that is the old-fashioned way, the system of drops and leaks. Well, and it was kind of one thing. of the old-fashioned ways, that's for sure. Well, that's right. I mean, of course, you're never going to say no to a leak, um, but you've got to kind of look at the context in which you're being given it and make sure that you're not being used as a tool uh, by whoever's given it to you. Um, I think, obviously, it's a real temptation to... Uh, um, Oh, and I'm not saying I don't cultivate forces oh, sure you do. Um, as politicians, but um, I think that, yeah, there's a very, I think that there has to be a line between um, being friendly and being um, cultivating your, your professional forces and then sort of being a little bit too too close and 
maybe pulling your punches for your favourite politician. Mm, okay, well, let's let's move on um, back to uh, our saints and sinners theme. Uh, the Good Weekend, I mentioned in the introduction, the Good Weekend story is about George Columbus and, and how he, had, he was coping with his public shaming over underpaying his workers some $2.7 million uh, was on one level uh, an unfortunate piece of timing. And, you know, I, I feel empathy for the, for the editor of The Good Weekend about that. I mean, The Good Weekend wasn't to know that after it went to print that the Fair Work Ombudsman was going to reveal that the actual underpayment was more like three times that amount. But, and but, what about uh, portraying him as a saint with a sort of word halo around his famously shaved bonce and, and his eyes turned down as if he was to perform a holy miracle or some sort of redemptive pose? What do you think about the that part of it, Simon? I think, um, you know, I understand, as you do, Peter, um, the situation that Katrina, the editor, was in. Um, but I think, if you, and, and, she, and the way she defended it on Instagram is actually, you know, when you read the piece, it's certainly not a piece. It's all not all about him at all by any means. And there's a huge amount of other things around um, the pressure of being a chef and and the, the, how that impacts on people's lives. And it's you know uh, uh, begins with a suicide. And it's a really you know deep piece of quite broad reporting mm. and it's self-aware in that the reporter Luke Benedictus um, actually you know questions whether this is a PR move and looks at it and thinks, but like. Based on all that, and based on knowing when this this was coming down, the the perfect storm was they could have anticipated that I think, and certainly they didn't need to have that design treatment, which I think was the thing that um, that people were responding to on Saturday was Ooh. like, how bad does this look? That this is the thing that falls out that everybody grabs first out of the package in Sydney or Melbourne. And, you know, the, the news reporting in the last 24 hours has been how bad this, this finding has been. It, so I just think they could have anticipated that, you know, they could have still had him in there, interviewed him, been part of that story. But to put him in this, in this treatment, I think they were painting across with their own backs. Yeah, well, as it turns out, yeah. very much so. And I guess in part, and, you know, this is the, what was never explicit in that story, of course, was that the final season, oh, sorry, this, the yeah, finale. The timing. Right? The timing, the right? Show. So yeah. they put yeah. George Conbars. Yeah. It wasn't a coincidence. No. It wasn't a mistake yeah. uh, but so do, so Wilson does this go to this kind of whole issue of the news media needing saints and sinners you know winners and losers I don't know I, I've, I've noticed that uh, this celebrity adulation thing has been growing every year I'm wondering if this is the marker of peak celebrity adulation because it's it's peak. you know we, we've seen everything it's now we, we cover everything from Instagram followers to well-being gurus even when they're turn, it turns out that they're total fakes and yet we all go tut, 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 and then find another one and do exactly the same things, repeat. Mm. So why can't we, you know, try and find – it's not just the harder stories, but also try and find – celebrate people, which is what celebrities – how they're created. Why don't we celebrate people who have actually done amazing things, whether in international aid or in the area that I like, science and research, medical research. You know, there are heroes to be found, but we, we go for these easy – I mean, look, you know, I don't take the – I don't, I don't dis- disagree with the point you're making that you know it can be difficult to be a chef, but really, come on, it's a chef. You're not you know saving uh, saving people from cancer or something. You know. Well, he might be, uh, but you know, he might be uh, helping people eat better, which in itself is a good thing. If yes, nutrition, but really, it, we, we've created sh- chefs. This whole the number of cooking programs. I remember before. Delicious magazine came along. There were no cooking magazines of any kind. Now there's so many, and there's Ooh. so many programs. It's 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 an easy it's easy journalism to do this sort of stuff. It's easy stories to tell. Harder stories need okay. more effort. All right, Sarah. I know we're running out of time, and I know you may have to leave this uh, leave us. But before we do, uh, I wanted to get to two quick things. 
again, two names, two heroes or villains, depends on how you look at it, Julian Assange and Dylan Voller. I mention Voller, of course, because it, it is his legal action against media companies which prompted Justice Stephen Rothman to rule that media companies were liable for defamatory comments made by third parties on their Facebook pages, even if they don't know, even if the companies themselves don't know that they are there and, and that it's basically Facebook that controls those pages. So this judgment is being appealed by News Corp and several other media organizations. How big a deal is this, do you think, Sarah? I think um, it's potentially huge. Um, I sort of shudder, I'm just a humble reporter. Simon would probably know far more about this than me, but I shudder to think about um, the the breadth of news companies' responsibility if we had to be somehow um, legally responsible for every comment that was posted on Facebook pages. I, I see um, comments on the news on the news stories on companies' own websites and sometimes shudder and think, I'm not sure that that should necessarily be up there and think that there's a defamation risk there. Um, I think News Corp in lodging its appeal has said that um, this is another reason why we need to have another look at Australia's defamation laws, that we're out of step with um, the rest of Western democracies, basically, because in other places, Media companies have the defence of innocent dissemination if an offensive comment has been published without their knowledge on a place like Facebook. So um, I think it's probably making making uh, media executives very nervous this because it just opens up an entirely large can of worms that we don't need to deal with when there's already cost-cutting pressures and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so Simon, you uh, but as when you were with BuzzFeed, I mean, you've danced with Facebook in the pale moonlight, as it were. <laughs> is this just another example of how we don't fully understand how enmeshed news is with digital platforms? I think in this ex- example and, and previous examples we've seen over the last couple of years, it shows, as Sarah says, how far um, our, our legal system is behind um, the reality of how people are consuming, engaging, and c- commenting on news. Um, and, you know, like any of you spends a bit of time on Facebook can see that you, pub- you write your comment and it's there immediately. It's not obviously yeah. being moderated in any kind of way. Bang. So then all of a sudden to hold the, 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 the person who set that page up, the outlet that set that page up responsible for those things, when there's, there's not the, the ability to, to pre-moderate those comments, it, it shows a, a bit of a lack of understanding, I think, in just how they work. And I think that that's been proven in other examples in other cases. And that's where we really do need, with some urgency, I think, to, to take stock of um, how these platforms work work uh you know this again was a thing that created ripples around the world that is creating some um, this particular judgment was to create this um you know at, at a moment when there's huge amounts of interest and focus on mm. on how these businesses operate in the future well yeah um so you know it'll be interesting to see but i do think that we're long overdue a look um and you know every um executive in the country has been calling for a good look at defamation and we, and and we are yeah. in the near future about to have the ACCC's report onto the digital very platform. near future very right? near future yeah. we believe so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump forward to the final question because I know Sarah has to go. I want to just ask everyone very, a very simple question, starting <laughs> with you, Wilson. Julian Assange, a hero or a villain? I think um, the Four Corners piece said it nicely. To some, he's a champion of free speech. To others, he's an irresponsible anarchist. I actually suspect he's both. At the same time? Yeah. Both at the same time? You can't take back what some of the incredible stuff he's done about reveal, particularly at the beginning of WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. the revelations and the yeah. uh, disclosures. The but you also yeah. can't take back the, the guy's ego and his inability to see himself from the outside. Mm. Mm. Okay. Simon? Oh, I love the rock star combined with James Bond type of vibe, the reckless narcissist, the most hunted man on earth. I mean, it was gripping. 
Um, uh, but I do think, I think really that like, what we need to look at is this, is that news is in danger, that, this, uh, that news isn't a, a person, um, it's a process, and that that process needs protecting. And we can all agree or disagree about um, you know, the ways it worked. He worked with some very, the New York Times, The Guardian, yep. you know, huge global names who put the reporting under immense rigor. Um, and then, like, all of a sudden, you know, he's kind of like person, not gratis, and we kind of want to wash our hands on him. So whether, whether you feel that, like, he's a, a great crusader for truth or you feel he's an, ox, uh, an anarchist or somebody who's collaborated with the Russians to impact the election, all the, whatever those things, there's probably truth in all of those things. Mm. At core, um, you know, uh, the, the news media um, is under threat everywhere, and this is another way that governments are really putting what we do under threat. Is it just on that point, though, mm. do you think he's a journalist? I would not call him a journalist, no. Okay. Sarah, what do you think? Here are a villain, and do you think he's a journalist? Um, I, I don't think he's a journalist. I think he's potentially a well, a vehicle for whistleblowers. Um, so, you know, that, that position potentially needs to be protected. But I also, um, I don't know, when, whenever I hear stories about Julian Assange, I kind of, it, uh, I can't, can't help remembering the fact that he's still under, well, he's under renewed investigation in Sweden over some fairly serious rape allegations. And I know that there's obviously huge media freedom and uh, national security debate about Julian Assange, but I think we should also not forget that um, there's that concurrent investigation that's going on, or at least has been re-enlivened since he's emerged from the embassy in London. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, it'll be interesting to see what Four Corners does with it next week. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, look, that is about all time we, we all about. Well, that is about all the time we have for this week's show. I think have a funny feeling we could be talking for another hour. Um, uh, what a wonderful panel! I'd like to thank Sarah Elks, the Queensland correspondent, political correspondent for the Australian. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, back to, go back to estimates. <laughs> Much <laughs> less interesting than this debate. Well, that's. Today. <laughs> can you tell uh, the, the Palaszczuk government that? <laughs> that's what I'll pass. I'll pass on that message. Yeah, please more do. interesting. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Simon Kura, the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed Australia. So, Simon, I mentioned it right at the beginning of the show. What are you going to do next? Uh, I've been um, spending some time uh, enjoying my new baby and thinking about what's next. And actually, having worked as a journalist for 20 years, it's given me an opportunity to really reflect on you know, where our industry is at. Um, and I believe that, um, you know, despite the climate, um, I think there's, there's really a need for um, new, fresh approaches of innovation. So I'm working on a journalism startup, which okay. um, I'm hoping to launch next year. OK, yeah. well, we'll get you on the show when Absolutely. you're ready to talk about that. Definitely. At length. OK, great. And Wilson DeSilva, awesome. the founder, the editor uh, of Cosmos. But you are a gun for hire. I am a gun for hire. Well, that's right. Give, give us your pitch. <laughs> Come on, here, here we go. Come on. Nobody has the experience in science journalism that I have across all mediums, television, radio, print, magazines, online, and uh, no one can do it with a smile like I can. And I can, <laughs> uh, we can all attest that he's smiling. <laughs> okay. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you so much. Uh, fantastic episode of The Fourth Estate. Um, this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Uh, make sure you've subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and a few things in between, even science, um, in between at your leisure. And we'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thank you very much to my producer, Anthony Dockerell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.